And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Thursday has come. Finally, it is our last day of the week for this particular show. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Jason Hunt here in the studio at World Headquarters. Happy to have all of you here. It has been a fairly busy week here. And the original plan was very clever. And we'll get into that here in just a moment. But uh, uh, as, as we get into our conversation today, just a couple of things real quick. If you are looking to save a little money, we do have a discount code set up over at SuperheroStuff.com. You can save 10% off when you use the promo code SCIFI for me 10 And a uh, programming note, just to let you know, starting this Friday, we are going to be participating and helping out with the Walking and Rolling Costumes virtual party starts October 16th at 7 p.m. Central. We'll be streaming live, talking about all of the work that they're doing over there, designing costumes for kids in wheelchairs and, and uh, talking to the families and talking to the people who have helped out. So we do invite you to join us there starting on Friday because it's all for a good cause. Now, I say that uh, our our plan, our plan was very clever because this is October 15th. It was supposed to be the second presidential debate tonight. And we timed all of this out to be very, very, very clever. And uh, our cleverness got the better of us because there's no debate tonight. But that's okay. We're still going to talk politics and superheroes with Mr. Brian Cato joins us uh, today from our New Jersey, is that right? Correct. All right. Well, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let me let me start. We're going to introduce the book. The book is called Candidate Spectrum, and we'll talk about that here for just a moment. But your background is in chemistry and engineering. Yeah, I was a, a chemist for the pharmaceutical in- industry for about 10 years, and then um I know you guys talk a lot about sort of the publishing industry. The the pharmaceutical industry is not very well managed either. And and I kind of started looking for work and had a lot of trouble. And my wife was a software engineer, software developer. And she, I had been looking for work for like a year. I had four interviews and she lost her job. And like a week later, she had four interviews lined up. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm in the wrong field. I need to shift gears. <laughs> So um, with her help, I learned some JavaScript and became a software engineer and I got a job basically for a, a company that's trying to um, remake the pharmaceutical industry, challenge the way they do business, and that's Schrodinger. Um, and I worked there for, for, for four years. I, when I was in college, I did some temp work uh, to wrap around the, the class schedule and stuff. And one of the jobs that I had was uh, at a an animal pharmaceutical company, uh, helping to update all of their notebooks and their records and their you know all of the all of the logs for all of their experiments and tests and things. And I was flabbergasted at the amount of paperwork that was involved just in changing a label 
in in terms of uh, you know FDA approvals and all the marketing stuff. Oh, we have to correct the spelling, so you got to go through all that process again. It just was an enormous amount of trees were sacrificed uh, for for the pharmaceutical company to actually have this thing out on the market. And a lot of them, you know, you're sitting 10, 15, 20 years and the thing's still not to market because by the time you get the label, uh, the label approved, then all of the, all of the tests and the experiments have, have gone out of date. So they got to run through and do them all over again. It was ridiculous. So I, I can, I can, I can sympathize with your, with your complaints about, uh, about management of that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and government regulations, right? I mean, the, the oh, FDA yeah. requires these companies now to maintain their records for 100 years. And it's, it's a big, they don't know what to do because no one knows if computer records last 100 years or not. Yeah, because, you know, for a while we were all using uh, data DVDs for storage and now it turns out, oh, no, well, data is not going to stay on the DVD for, for, you know, 10, 15 years. Like, okay, well, now what do we do? So, I don't know, maybe those... Maybe the Flintstones had it right. We do. We go back to those slate discs, and and that'll hold it. <laughs> well, paper. A lot. The pharmaceutical industry loves paper. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that. I I lost count of how many three ring binders I had to deal with. So so politics. The, this is to 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 shift from from chemistry to computer software. It's kind of you know same kind of mentality wheelhouse science and, and and they're at least second cousins to each other in a way politics is not so how how did we shift into writing a book about politics because your other stuff uh, I'm looking it doesn't seem like uh, you're a political writer but you're introducing politics as a main theme in this new book yeah, this 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 is kind of a one-off for me. I, I don't really want to write another book about politics. Like, I think it's I think it's very timely, right? But I think there's a certain way as a writer, if you concentrate too much on politics, you kind of get weighted down in the present. And I, I feel like writers should be addressing more sort of universal, timeless themes. Um, but basically, you know, I I've been writing books, and in 2016, I saw Donald Trump, you know, rising and and getting in a position where he was going to be the, the nominee and eventually he was president. And I started thinking about, you know, people are going to want to, to understand, like, why is Trump, why did Trump win the nomination? Why did he become president? And I felt that that was something that I kind of wanted to explore individually. And I thought that, you know, would, would be a good topic for a really timely book. Um, so that's kind of the, the genesis of how Candidate Spectrum came into being. And the premise of the book, Spectrum, is a superhero. He's kind of a Superman analog. And he decides after, after all of this, you know, saving people and saving the world and saving, saving individuals and doing all of this stuff, he feels like he's, he's really not doing enough, so he decides to run for president. Yeah. It's on the, on the face of it, it's an interesting notion because you have, you know, we, th this kind of thing we've seen in, in comic books, but it's usually the villain that's running for office. You know, you have, you know, people like Lex Luthor that want to be the, the president. Um, alternate universe in Marvel, Captain America becomes the president. And he turns out to be not a very good person. I'm about halfway through the book 
uh, it's an interesting premise so far. One thing that I'm that I'm curious about is your use of present tense to tell this story. Uh, that seems to be cropping up a little bit more than usual uh, over the last couple of years. Chuck Wendig uh, used it for his Aftermath trilogy over the Star Wars universe. Uh, we were talking to Alan Stroud yesterday. He uses present tense on his new book. What's what's the, the thinking behind using present tense for this particular story? Um, well, because this is so timely, right, I wanted to create a sense that, that you were sort of living through events, so to speak, um, especially, you know, just coming out a couple months before the election. So there was this kind of immediacy. And I also wanted to kind of create this idea that, you know, that as you're, you're like one of the problems I think with with books that are written in past tense is that you get you get a character who often like knows how things turn out and has kind of kind kind of come to terms. And I didn't want you to have that sense while you're reading Candidate Spectrum. I wanted you to be very much invested in what he's going through, you know, and when he's struggling with these, these ideas and kind of trying to identify what's going wrong in America, I wanted the reader hopefully to be thinking along with him, right? What, what would I think? What, what do I think about the things that he's, he's exploring, what he's trying to do? Um, so I, I guess in a lot of ways, it came down to, to trying to immerse the reader, you know, in the world. Now, is this self-published? Yes, it is. Okay, it's, so it's published by my my incorporation, right, at BC Studios. Okay, so how much editorial process was there? Would did you have, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people who are self-published, they'll have beta readers, they'll have people who will give them feedback. Did you yeah, have? I, I kind of had two layers. Um, I had. I have a bunch of beta readers who, who, you know, have read my stuff before and, and are pretty reliable, can read it pretty quickly and get back to me. Um, so they kind of gave me overarching feedback. And then I hired a couple editors to, to edit, especially the first chapter. Um, but then one of the editors went a little deeper into the book because I just wanted to get a sense of like, how am I doing in terms of like, how many grammar mistakes am I making? Like how many run on sentences do I have that need correcting? And one of the reasons I actually didn't continue past the first four chapters is the answer was I wasn't making a whole lot. Um, and so, you know, I, I did follow up on their corrections, but most of their feedback was more kind of wide scale was, um, you know, probably stuff that, that you might talk about, like where if you're dealing with a novel that's very political, like that's going to be something that a lot of people coming from a fiction world aren't really all that that comfortable with. Right. Did you get a lot of pushback from people saying, you know, this this kind of feels like a third rail here because of how the the political climate and the social climate is right now? Or were you concerned at all that you were diving into a political book in the midst of everything that's been going on? I know I know you said you thought that this was the the right time. To, it felt like this was something you needed to do. But did anybody come back to you and kind of say, "Ooh, maybe this is not a good time"? It's, it's. Did you did you get any resistance from the people that read it ahead of time? I I didn't get the specific kind of resistance you're talking about. I, I got resistance from the editors I worked with saying that there, you need more plot, you need less focus on sort of political issues. 
Um, I would say, and, and part of this is a selective audience, right? My beta readers are people I know. So they're people who have kind of similar viewpoints to me or, or similar ways of approaching the world. Sure. Um, and so they're, they weren't really, they kind of liked how relevant it was and they liked this, you know, that we're dealing with issues. And I, I guess I would say too that that one of my approaches was I didn't want to make this like, you know, uh, uh, a, a book that's all about left-wing points of views or right-wing points of views. I wanted to kind of step back and say, like, look, our politics is looks to me like it's broken and it's been broken for a while, right? And why is that? Like if, if left and right-wing sort of discussion and discourse has dominated politics for 20 years or 40 years, right? That's led us to where we are. And, and that's part of the problem. So if we're going to, you know, make America better, then we need to get away from that. And a lot of the book is about that. It's about, you know, these are some issues that are really, really important. They're guiding America on the path that we're on, but nobody's talking about it. Right. Now, did you find that you had to dial back at all on your personal political ideologies in order to strike that balance? Was it a oh, yeah. challenge to do that? Or, I mean, you really wanted to lean heavily into one side or the other? I mean, I, you know, your instinct as someone who has ideas is to try to put your ideas into the book, right? But I, I, I mean, I, I struggled with that, right? The, some of my ideas are definitely in there. Um, a lot of my ideas are not in there, right? A lot of my, I, I would say Spectrum is more moderate than I am. Um, and, you know, as far as I have strong beliefs on, say, gun rights or abortion, like, I, I just avoided those categories, like, almost entirely. There are a couple lines on each subject. Um, and I don't know, when, when you're writing something that's so focused on political issues, right, it's always a, a huge challenge. I don't know how I did, right? You, the, the audience is going to have to tell me whether I struck the right balance between talking too much about issues, too much about plot, you know, is it, is it open and receptive enough to, to conservatives, to liberals, to middle of the road people? When you say that you got some pushback on, on you know, some feedback rather that uh, it needed more plot. I, I've seen, you know, personally, I've, I've seen a couple of places where some of your character dialogue moments feel a little bit like the, some of the political action committee ads that we'd see where you just ran, you know, one statistic after the other, after the other, after the other. Was that a deliberate choice on your part to do that? Or was that, was that one of those places where you disagreed with the people that are saying there needs to be more, more meat on the bones in, in these particular places? Yeah, it was a deliberate choice. Um, I can't say 100% it's the right choice, but but one of my feelings was in writing this book that I wanted to to convey the political process as it exists, right? And if you're if you're Spectrum and you're running for president and you're sort of very very serious about making people's lives better, you want to be invested in the issues, right? And and he's going to have discussions about those issues, and you want to have that discussion be. I, you don't want to overwhelm people necessarily, but you also don't want to shy away from, you know, a real exchange of, of data that's going to be given to these characters, right? Right. these these people. And how much research, because you talk about the process of, you know, 
the candidate going through the exploratory stuff and putting together their their campaign committees and and researching issues and all of that. How much research did you do going into this to to find the information on how that process takes place? Are, are, have, do you have experience in that? Have you been part of campaigns before, or was this completely something on the outside that you had to research? No, I, I don't have experience. Um, I tried I did a ton of research, both, I, I think kind of what you're asking about, probably the most relevant thing is I, I, I read the book Shattered. I don't know if you heard about that. It's, it's a, basically a biopsy of the Clinton campaign, the Hillary Clinton campaign, and talking about um, what went wrong with the campaign. And one of the reasons I read it is I wanted, for Spectrum, I wanted the, his campaign to be somewhat contentious, right, and a little bit of dysfunction to it. Right. And so I wanted to get a sense of how that dysfunction would have worked in Clinton land. Right. And sort of the other aspect of, of my research was a lot of these topics that come up in the book weren't necessarily things that I had a lot of expertise in, right? Like, for instance, there, there's a, later in the book, about three quarters of the way through, there's a foreign policy debate, right? And I did a lot of research on, you know, sort of forward-looking foreign policy theories so that I could write a chapter that this sounded like a candidate who had thought a lot about how do I make a different foreign policy, you know, so I could write that convincingly. And, you know, every topic that comes up, you know, as I said, I didn't want to put my point of view in there. So I was always doing research, you know, trying to read, well, what are, what are think tanks saying about this, right? What are some nonprofits who are involved in these, these issues saying about this? Um, and how are they, you know, how are they writing white papers? How are they communicating that to people? So uh, uh, in, in your research, what, what think tank, you mentioned think tanks and, and, and the white papers. What think tanks did you look into as far as uh, different things? Heritage Foundation, Cato Institute, uh, various different super PACs, uh, Clinton Foundation. Where, where, where was some of this information coming from? How did you source it? Oh, um. I tended not to go for the big ones because I, I'm not, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to have to blank on this because I'm not going to remember any of the small ones. And, and usually what would happen is I change their names slightly in the text so that, you know, you didn't know exactly who I was talking about. Right. Um, but, you know, the big name institutes, like you mentioned, Heritage Cato, they all have kind of like these, these partisan slants themselves. They're left winging, they're right winging. They're, they're part of the mainstream establishment with establishment views. So I was trying to find more obscure ones that were pushing sort of more theories that were kind of outside the mainstream, right? right. Um, a, a number of them are involved in technology, right? And in, um, in trying to figure out, you know, if, if the attention economy is a problem, if people are, are becoming sort of involved and enmeshed in their phones and ignoring the, the outside world, right? How do we change that? Um, and that, that was kind of interesting that to read kind of what they're doing and, and think about it. And I think a lot of what they were, they were talking about, the solutions they're putting forward seemed to me kind of weak. Oh. Um, what, what's that? How, how so? Just, it just they're taking middle of the road, they're watered down, or they don't go far enough. 
You, when you say watered problem, down, it... Uh-huh. Uh, just that it's a problem that it's really hard to figure out a solution for, right? Like if, if you buy into the premise that people are, are sort of too invested in their phones and they're, they're paying too much attention to them, well, what's the problem? You, what, what's the solution? What are possible solutions? You go around telling people don't do that? Well, that's not going to work, right? Right. Um, and this is kind of, it, it comes up in the book, right? You see a, a lot of discussion where Spectrum himself kind of feels like, like he's not completely invested in this and his campaign gives him a lot of pushback on like, well, if, if you think the attention economy is a problem and your solution basically is a public education campaign, like, well, how does that fit into a presidential campaign? How is that compelling for people? Is the, you, the, the attention economy, like you talk about, we talk about social media a lot and, and especially yeah. this week, it's, it's becoming the center of attention for a number of discussions are are you uh, cognizant, sensitive to the concerns that people have over social media? Did that feed into the research at all on some of this? Because it doesn't seem like it's a it's a main pain point here in the book, but like you said, it's it's part of the overall collective whole that we have to deal with. And there's been a lot of talk back and forth about how mobile devices and, and online and, and that kind of thing has affected us both mentally and emotionally. Was that, a, was that something that you wanted to address in the book that maybe, maybe you, you touched on it, you don't get to talk about it as much as you want, or you were able to address it as much as you were able to, to fit it into the rest of it? Yeah, I, I think this is, you're talking about sort of there's a meta question here, right? And, and I think this is a really important issue, but, you know, in a novel where you don't want to spend too much time on issues, you want to have plot and characterization, you have a limited amount of time to spend on any one thing. Right. So that's kind of the first, the first iteration is I think it's really important, but I spent as much time as I felt I could spend on it. Um, for me, I think, I think later in the book, kind of in the second half, one of the, the predominant themes that comes up is kind of empowering people to become their best selves. And I, I think as a society, we don't do a really good job of that. And so I think that this, this issue is kind of just one aspect of the way that we do that very poorly. And I think, you know, personally for me, I, I have kind of a weird relationship with technology. I'm a little bit older. Um, I'm not addicted to my cell phone. I use my cell phone like once or twice a week. I do play too many video games, right? And so that is, that is, I, I'm, I'm aware that when I sit down, right, video games have that tendency of you say like, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'll play for 10 or 20 minutes and you look up and it's an hour and a half later. Right. 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 So I'm, I'm aware of that like own tendency in myself to, you know, where you, you almost have these, these different people in your head like one who's saying like i'm present me i'm going to have fun now and this other one who's saying like future me needs to get this book done right and i probably need to add, to think about my programming skills and updating my website and all of these other things that you talk about voices in your head you talk about the people who are reading and and giving you feedback are there people from your life uh, in who show up in the book? Are there characters that are based on people you know, or are these all just 
amalgams from people that we would recognize out in the public sphere. Yeah. So I, if I, that's the, again, it's kind of a dual layered question. I would say there's no one in this book that kind of comes out of my, my own life. Um, the characters, one of the things I did. Um, so for instance, Spectrum's vice president uh, is an amalgam of Elizabeth Warren and Nikki Haley. So I, I think in, I think her name is Lizzie Halen. Right. And so I did this, I did this a lot where I took someone from the right wing and someone from the left wing, and I kind of tried to merge their personalities and their names to give like a feel that, you know, that the world was similar to our, to our own, but a little bit different. Right. Um, and I also kind of wanted to hide people's partisan identities. So that's, that's another reason why I did that. Did you find it a challenge to find the voice of the book when, when you're, you're setting yourself a limit in that the book is not going to be left or right. It's going to be kind of all over the place, mix mash. Did you find it uh, a challenge to, to settle in on Spectrum's voice and the perspective of the book? Um, a little bit. I, I think that, you know, it's, it's third person. So you kind of, in, in a way you don't get too much of Spectrum's voice. Um, what you, what you kind of, I mean, he's, he speaks a lot in the book, so you get his voice in, in that way. But I think one of the things that I was concerned about is that in, in sci-fi and in fantasy and in these genre fiction, these genre books, voice becomes very important. And a lot of people will buy book based on the voice. And because I was going to be talking about issues so much, I didn't really want a voice that kind of overwhelmed the narrative and overwhelmed the issues. So I took kind of a more journalistic approach, um, kind of a, I don't want to say a dry voice, but kind of a matter of fact voice. Like, and I, I mean, you know, like, like anytime you make an artistic decision, I'm, I'm not convinced to this day that that was the right choice. Right. And um, I do wonder if I'd taken a more kind of experimental voice, if, if the novel would, you know, get a different reaction. Right. What kind of response have you had so far from the general public? Uh, it, you know, this book has been out now for how long? It's a couple of, it's, it's just recently come out. It hasn't been out very long. Yeah, it's, it's been out three weeks. Um, and the, the response has been kind of what I expected. I, I'm getting... I'm getting some portion of people who think it's really cool that, that I did something with a superhero, something different with the superhero genre, right? And tried to approach politics from this different point of view. And I'm getting a lot of people who, who don't really get it, who think that it's, you know, a polemic of my own views. And, and it's, it's not, right? It's, if, if it were a polemic of my own views, it would be a very different book. Um, and so I know, I kind of knew that going in, that you're going to have conservatives and liberals who, you know, if you're hardcore on either side, this probably isn't the book for you because I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to support either the hardcore of you. Like I'm going to try to find some way that the country can come together and move forward together. Right. There has, along those lines, there have, have been several debates over the last four or five years, especially when it concerns the Hugos, but just science fiction literature 
uh, gaming, comics, Hollywood, there, there's this debate going on now. There's a criticism that politics is starting to creep in a little bit too obviously in a lot of our entertainment media. And for good or ill, left or right, whatever whatever that is, there are a lot of people who think that's a bad idea, that, that as soon as you start putting your personal politics into a story, whether it's a TV show or a film or a book, then you run the risk of alienating at least half your potential market. Did you have any of that in mind as you're thinking about your approach? Okay, how am I going to present these politics? Did, were you sensitive to the fact that there are going to be people out there who are going to sit there and say, oh, this is a political book. It's probably going to be fill in the blank. Are, are you expecting people to have preconceived notions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's one of the, the early discussions I had with one of my beta readers is, is my character a Democrat or a Republican, right? What, what should I make him? And um, I was kind of on the fence at that point and, and he had a really good idea. And he's basically like, don't make him either. Just don't tell people what he is. Um, and so that was one way that I, I kind of try to avoid that morass. But I think kind of the, the wider point, right? Like, I think that I think that if you're taking your own views and you're putting them in literature, like I think that that that's kind of problematic. Um, but I think that if as a society, we're afraid to talk about important issues in politics, in our literature, in our television, in our arts kind of generally, that's a big problem, right? Like how do you, if you never talk about the issues that are important outside of a political show, like how do you ever come to any resolution about those issues? Right. Like right. if, if the only people who are allowed to talk about, you know, say the attention economy to take something that people aren't really talking about in politics, right. If the only people who are saying things about the attention economy in the political sphere are hardcore Republicans and hardcore Democrats who aren't going to approach the issue of the attention economy with sort of intellectual honesty and rigor right, and open-mindedness, then we're not going to have, like, a real good solution about how to approach that. And that's true widely, right? I think that's part of the, the problem with gun rights and abortion and all these hot, hot, hot trigger topics, right, is, is you have these people kind of, like, in their hardcore mindset, and nobody's thinking about, like, okay, what kind of, of innovative new solution can we have that will appeal broadly to people? Well, not and only I that. Think you have you have the the whole uh, cancel culture aspect of that uh, that that really makes it difficult to have any kind of a discussion about any topic, you know, especially the third rail topics. But any anything, you know, if you if you disagree with me, I'm going to do whatever I can to shut down your life, your career and, and, and make it hard for you to even exist. And as long as we have that as an aspect of all of this and i think that factors into the attention the attention economy like you're talking about yeah you know if you disagree with me i'm going to make it difficult for you to get attention for your ideas to get out there and that way we we don't have to even debate your ideas because i'm right and you're wrong there's this us versus them mentality that i think it's going to take us quite a while and a lot of effort to get past 
would you say? Yeah, I, I was very concerned about that. Um, I think one of the ways that I, I tried to, to kind of address that and, and tried to, to kind of push what I thought might be a way forward is if you go back to, like I was, part of my preparation for this, I read a good part of the Federalist Papers, right? Because I wanted to think about, like if I'm writing a book about America and America, American politics, right? What were the things that were really important to the founders? And some of the, the concepts around jurisprudence, right, and our, our jury, our judicial system, like a fair trial, uh, you know, being judged by your peers, having a punishment that's proportional to the crime, right? These are all things that the cancel culture is kind of circumventing, right? If, right? if you say something bad about, you know, some set of people and the punishment is you can't ever work again in America, well, that's a case in which the punishment is not at all proportional to the crime, right? That's extremely anti-democratic. And that, that's something the founding fathers would have had a huge problem with. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard because I don't necessarily want to take cancel culture on like head on, but I do want to say like, look, there's another way that we could be doing this. And, and as you say, right, like if it's, if it's you're either with us or we're, we're going to take your voice away, well, that's, that's not something that's going to bring us together as a country, right? That's not going to solve any problems or heal wounds. You're going to get pushback from the other side. And, and you know, that's what we're seeing, right? We're seeing these hardened camps where, where no one's listening to each other. Right. Now, did that factor into your approach to any particular topic as you're going through the book? You know, I'm 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 writing this piece. I need to be very careful how I present this because I don't want to get slammed by one side or the other. Oh yeah, there. Are, I mean, there there were so many issues where where it came in. Like, um, I'm I'm, and this goes back to other things you were you were asking about too. I, I'm a big environmentalist, right? But there are only a couple of passing references to global warming. Um, and it's presented in, in one of them, it's kind of actually minimized, right? And so that was something where it's such a hot topic issue that I, I just kind of wanted to stay away from it. Right. But at the same time, I feel like it's kind of a defining issue for our time. And I, I would be negligent to say nothing about it. Um, and, you know, all of these hot button issues like abortion, gun rights, I just tried to stay away from them entirely because I don't think like, I think if you think about, if you're someone who thinks America is on the wrong track, right, and you want to think about how do we get back on the right track, worrying about gun rights just isn't going to do it. You know, it's just not a big enough issue. Um, and I, I even think you could go further and you could say, you know, all of these, these sort of major policy pushes of the the major, the big parties, right, if you're, if you're Republican, you probably are are anti-immigration, you're probably anti-regulation, anti-tax, right? And if you're a Democrat, you're probably, you probably medic, more free medical care for people, right? Maybe free college, maybe, maybe pro-immigrant. I don't think any of these issues is going to fix what's wrong with the country, right? And so um, it was kind of interesting to see Andrew Yang in the Democratic primary, right? Bring, I don't necessarily think he had identified the right issues, but I, I, I really thought it was interesting how he was bringing kind of new and fresh issues and fresh solutions into the dialogue. And I, I thought that was that was productive. Right. Well, plus you've got uh, I believe it was Tulsi Gabbard trying to trying to be a little bit more of a, a, a voice of moderation as far as 
what kind of topics and how you approach those topics. And she didn't get very far either. It, do, it does seem like uh, you've got extremes and, and the polarization has gotten to the point where, like you say, a, an actual productive dialogue is very difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, you saw that in the debates, right? You saw that, that the candidates are basically arguing over the same set of ideas like over and over and over. And if, if you saw one democratic debate, you, they were basically all the same. Yeah. The first 15 minutes are, do we want partial Medicare for all or do we want everyone on Medicare, right? And, you know, I, I think it's an important problem, but it's not what's wrong with America. So how... What what's what suggestions would you have now? You, let's say let's say Brian Cato is running for office, just just as oh, a God. hypothetical. I, I know. God, God help I know. us all. It's not <laughs> it's not something I contemplate for myself either. But if if you're if you're able to have some kind of influence on the conversation, and something basically, you say that's that's kind of one of the intents of the book is to open up the ideas and say, you know, we should be talking about these things. What to you would be some of the ways that we could get past this us versus them and sit down and have uh, a, a conversation about some of these topics? What would you suggest would be a way to approach that kind of thing? I, I think it's really hard because I think, I don't think that it's something where you can blink your eyes, right? You have whatever idea you, you want to put in place. You can blink your eyes and the idea is out there and everything's fixed, right? It's going to take, if you're talking about cultural problems that have led us to where we are, you have to change the culture. Um, and that's a process that takes decades probably. And so I, I guess to start, I want to kind of duck the question a little bit and and the book does this too, where if we want to think about how do we fix things, I want to think about when things were going really well for America, right? And I think there are two times that, that kind of stand out. And that's the, the revolutionary period where you have all of these sort of, you know, founding fathers who've become heroes to us. And they're kind of philosopher kings, right? They're coming out of the Enlightenment. They have these ideas about democracy and freedom and morality. And they've been very studious scholars, right? Franklin, Jefferson, a lot of them are all known as Renaissance men. And then you have the second era, like around the two world wars, it's called the progressive era now, where you have a lot of energy devoted into educating the populace, right? Everyone's gonna, there's mandatory school sort of comes into being at that time. And they really set the foundation for the forties and the fifties and the sixties and the prosperity we have today. Um, and so I, I think, you know, kind of directing people to, to look at those periods in time and think about what they were doing and, you know, kind of the culture at that time, that's, that's kind of one approach. Um, and I think to, to give you kind of a more direct, not duck the answer question, to me, you have to start with education, right? And you have to start with some, kind of the culture in the home. Um, and I think if you want to talk about you know, how do we get around cancel culture? How do we get out of these hardened cocoons we've, we've embedded ourselves in? Well, you have to have a culture where people aren't, people don't like conformity, right? And that's, that's something where 
I don't like to conform. I like to break out and do new things and cover new ground. And if, if you made me conform to, to standards and, you know, be in this corporate culture, I get really uncomfortable. I kind of wiggle in my skin. Right. Right. And I think another thing that happened early for me is I had a course on, on basically how do you tell if people are using bad arguments or arguing in bad faith, right? You have like kind of like, can you recognize when people are begging the question, right? If, if the prosecutor asks, do you remember when you first hit your wife, right? Like, right, right. The, like pr- that's the kind premise of-, of the question, if you accept the premise of the question, you've already lost the argument. Right. And so I, I kind of feel like that's where our political discourse is. Like you, like you said, you either have to accept our premise as a hard right or hard left. And I, you know, if, if we train our populace to recognize what's being done to them, to recognize, you know, if you're calling one of your opponents a monster, for instance, that's poisoning the well, right? If, if people think she's a monster, well, then nobody has to listen to her anymore. And nobody has to pay attention to what you're saying, right? And, and it goes the other way. If the president is a serial liar, right, and you impeached him, then nobody has to listen to what he's saying either. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think those are things that, that it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem where, you know, how do you do that if our culture is all about entertainment and, you know, burying yourself in your phone and people aren't interested in kind of, you know, how do you think about life better and more logically? Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that particular question, right? But I, I think hopefully there's a kind of a, hopefully I didn't duck the answer, the question entirely. No, not, not at all. I think, I think you did fine there. Now, having said all of that, do you think that that's something that's worth exploring in another book like Candidate Spectrum? Are you, are you at the point... I mean, yes, the book's just been out for three weeks. You've got a, you've got time to sit down and decompress and, okay, that's done. And, and whatever the process was, however painful or, or wonderful it was, now you get to sit in the aftermath and decide, well, am I going to put myself through that again? Are, are you percolating any ideas in the same kind of story maybe not necessarily something with spectrum but delving into uh political or social issues again um i'm i you don't want to never say never right if candidate spectrum became huge and people are begging for a sequel i I probably would have to write a sequel um but i'm not planning on it at this point um i think the social issues we're talking about though are, are kind of a horse of a different color right like i'm I'm very interested in those social issues. And I think I have a couple ideas for books right now. Um, I think, you know, one is more sort of oriented towards the technological ideas and, you know, how invested we are in a society in our technology instead of, for instance, how invested we are in a society in terms of our our moral qualities and the meaning of life and the depth of our lives and the richness of our art. And the other book kind of goes the other way where I'm thinking more about kind of social issues. Like, like to give an example that one of the characters in in this book, that's kind of rattling around in my brain is a female competitive Scrabble player. Right. And to talk about kind of identity issues, right. If you know, competitive Scrabble or competitive chess, there are very few women involved. Right. And it's a struggle for her, right. Because 
she's kind of trying to, to navigate. Well, why are there so few women in this? Like Scrabble is supposed to be, you know, as a, as a word game, it's supposed to be something that women who have this, this reputation, right? I don't think it's necessarily well justified, but this reputation for being really good at languages, they should excel there. Um, and so I'm, I want to try to use it to kind of explore, you know, gender and identity questions. Sounds interesting. It's, it's always, it's always interesting to, to think about the process of getting from the original germ of an idea to the finished product. And it's that, that process I've always found fascinating because then, then you have to look at, well, what, what comes next? You know, all of the, all of the storytellers will say, you know, your your biggest question in in developing a story is, and then what? Then what happens? You know, that that sort of thing. So those those, especially the Scrabble thing, that sounds like a very interesting starting point for something like that. Would that that kind of of exploration of issues? You know, when they say that, uh, you know. Star Trek has always been political or, or uh, uh, comic books have always been political. Some people make the distinction between the social issues and the moral questions and political party stuff. And it sounds like you're leaning toward the former with some of this rather than the latter, which is, I suppose, is a good thing because you, you can actually sit and talk about the actual issue as opposed to well, this is what my party says about the issue. Is that a, it, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a fine distinction, but is that something that needs to be done maybe a little bit more nowadays? Yeah, and, and that, was, that was one of the prime motivations for writing Spectrum the way I did, right? And, and for avoiding these, these hot button issues is I, I really want people to think about, um, you know, the issue itself and, and to encourage, you know, you, you were talking about like, well, how do you bring these changes about well i'm i'm hoping right that candidate spectrum catalyzes a discussion about well why do we have discussions the way that we have them right can is there a possibility that we can talk about all of these issues without like retreating to our hardened positions um and you know i i think that you were i, I don't know did you want to ask about process a little bit I, I, sure. I don't know. Yeah, we can get okay. into that. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people use an outline. A lot of people just go stream of consciousness. I've I've done it both ways myself. So, what what approach do you find works best for you? I I think it's difficult because um, I usually, when I'm writing a book, I usually have the end written, and I usually have the beginning written, and then I I have a bunch of stuff in the middle where I have to figure out how you get from one to the other. Um, and before this book, I was more of a pantser, if you will, right? Fly by the seat of your pants. I was more like, well, I'll just figure it out along the way. And I felt like with Candidate Spectrum, there were just too many issues and to deal with. And, and if I tried to do that, like I wouldn't, I'd get lost and I wouldn't be able to get to where I needed to go. So right. I, I did much more outlining and I felt like like that worked better for me. Like I, it, it made me think more about, you know, how do things fit together logically? Um, and it made me think more about 
you know, basically focus more on plot um, than I might have otherwise. Now, was there a particular reason to base Spectrum in Missouri? Was that uh, just an arbitrary part, or is this flyover country type of thing? Or, well, there were a couple of reasons. So, so at the beginning, you talked about uh, Spectrum being kind of like a Superman type character, and like he is, right? He that was kind of my original idea was was what if you have someone who has kind of like the Superman credentials where like he's, he's the blue boy scout, right? Like he's unquestionably good. What if that kind of person runs for president? Right. And then I, I also kind of crossed him with Dr. Manhattan because I really liked the um, kind of like the, the, the more overarching struggles of Dr. Manhattan where he's, he cares a lot about humanity, but at the same time, he's kind of disconnected from humanity. And I wanted that theme of, I wanted Spectrum to kind of have that, that quality in him where, you know, he's trying to help people, but he's also removed from them and he's, he's kind of alienated. Right. Um, and so part of basing him in, in Missouri was going through like a process in creating Spectrum where I'm trying to like dig up and these, these associations with Superman, right? Where he's going to admire Superman. He's going to have a lot of reasons to look up to Superman. Um, so that was kind of the first reason to go, you know, Missouri, Kansas, they're pretty close to each other. And then the other part, I know Missouri is trending more red, but for a long time, Missouri was a swing state. And so having him be the governor, he becomes the governor of Missouri which is his home state kind of positions him as this sort of independent middle of the road character right. where it's more feasible for him to be of either party. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. Especially given that Kansas city and, and St. Louis trend blue and the rest of the state doesn't. So it would, it would make a certain amount of sense that you could do it that way, that he could go either way is in terms of party. Was there, uh, was there any point where you sat there and looked at this and had any second thoughts at all about publishing a political book? I mean, I still have you, second thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like this, it, it just from what I've read so far, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's going to be particularly offensive to any particular group, but you never know out there. It's, it's, you know, anybody can find anything to be offended by and, and upset with. Do you have a, do you have a plan to deal with pushback? Are you, are you worried at all that somebody's going to come after you and say, how, you know, shake their finger at you and say, why did you write that book? And, and swap my home. <laughs> Um, hopefully yeah, not, I mean, hopefully not, <laughs> hopefully not. Don't, don't get any ideas. Anyone out no, there? No. Um, no, I mean, I, I'm concerned about it. I, I mean, I remain to this day and, and I think, I think I'm actually more concerned that people will, will discount the things that it says because they'll dismiss them as kind of politically motivated. Um, and one of the, and you, you kind of asked before about, you know, issues that I kind of pulled punches on. And I think one of the things that's, that's interesting in the modern world is how much corporations like 
kind of come to dominate our discourse, right? Right, and dominate our lives, and that's part of like cancel culture, right? Is is if if corporations aren't willing to fire people because of cancel culture, then cancel culture loses most of their power, right? And this is this is something that's come up, I think, especially with the NFL, where people are talking about, well, the NFL doesn't really care about these these issues, right? It's just, I mean, the players do, right? But the NFL doesn't care about Black Lives Matter. They're just doing the minimum that they can to appear that they care to get everyone off their back, right? Right, and I think this the way that the corporations dominate our culture, right? You look at the comic book industry; there are two big players. You look at airplanes; there are three airlines in the whole country, right? You look at publishing, book publishing, five major publishers, and you go on down the list. Every industry is the same. Um, and then, if you think about the country at the time of the founding, right? There were 20 corporations in America in, in 1800, and today we have 20 or 30 million. Um, and so corporations were one of the things where I don't really want corporations coming after me because <laughs> they're, they're very powerful. And I don't want, you know, I, I know a lot of people on the right are very pro-corporation, but I did want to bring up this issue is this is something where if freedom and the ability to determine the shape of your life is really important to you, right? And those are those are foundational American ideas. But all of our lives were kind of thralls to these corporations. Like that's a huge problem. Um, and it's big in the pharmaceutical industry. Like I worked with people in the pharmaceutical industry who recognized that leadership was doing really dumb things. But nobody wanted to say that to leadership because everyone knew if you did, you'd get fired. And like all these other industries we're talking about, right, it's very kind of a closed system where if if you get fired from one place, it can be difficult to latch on to another place because everybody knows each other. Sure. And they all talk and 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 they go back and forth. And uh, you have the the good old boys network and the whisper networks and the and the the behind the scenes back channels that are that are chattering about various different topics, not just not just individual people, but ideas and how do we present them and how do we make people come to our side and and that sort of thing. I think it's a, it is I agree with you. It is it is a challenge. It is a problem for uh, for anybody to have that honest dialogue. Now people could engage in dialogue and we see this some in in some industries and, and on some social media where people say that they're willing to talk about it, but as soon as you as soon as you start actually engaging then the behavior shifts and it's the, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's a, a conscious thing or if it's an unconscious thing almost at this point where we've been conditioned to be, to see other people as the enemy, as the other. And I'm, I'm at a loss personally to, to figure out just how we address that and, and get past it. Yeah. I, I think that, that you raise kind of an interesting point. Like um, I, w- I was reading an article last night in the Atlantic about um, shell corporations and how they encourage corruption, right? And there's, a, there's legislation in the Senate to try to rein them in, right? To get them out of America. Because why do we allow, you know, Delaware to incorporate all these shell corporations? Right. And it kind of got to your point where people will say they don't want shell corporations, 
But when you get to like the point of legislation, now you have a bunch of lobbyists kind of saying, no, 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 shell corporations are, are really important and we'll pay a lot of politicians a lot of money to keep them. And I think this kind of ties into an, another point that you were kind of um, talking about. Um, the concept of nimbyism, right? Not in my backyard comes up kind of later in candidate spectrum. And I think that that's, that's a large part of why we're paralyzed in modern America, because every issue is, comes back kind of to, to this nimbyism, right? Like you talk about, for instance, when you're talking about Black Lives Matter, right? And racial justice, you have this idea that schools should be equal everywhere, right? That, that if you're in a poor neighborhood, you should have the same resources in your school that you do in a rich neighborhood, right? And school integration and all of these things. And the main driver for the lack of progress on that is that you have, you know, a lot of progressive people who are very well off who will say those kinds of things. They, they speak racially progressive, but when it comes to taking dollars from their school district and sending it to a poor school district, well, that's where they draw the line. Right. And it's, right. it's going to be very hard to to solve any problems realistically in our country if every time we come up with a solution, the people who that solution harms say, no, 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 this isn't good enough. Right. And they have veto power over that solution. Right. So hopefully uh, your your book is the beginning salvo in uh, maybe having a little bit of dialogue on that. It's called Candidate Spectrum. It is out now. And this is not your first novel, right? This is uh, what your second or third at this point. It depends how you're counting. Um, it's my first like 300 page full length novel. Okay. So the, I have two books that are shorter. Um, one's about 180 pages. The other's about 50. Okay. And uh, also active on Twitter under uh, BC Muses. If you want to check them out over there. And uh, we will have a review of the book over at sci fi for mecom fairly soon, hopefully, if I can, if I can get unburied from a number of things that I've got going here. But uh, we do appreciate it. Brian Cato, thank you very much for joining us today and, and spending time talking to us. It's been a great, a great conversation, I think. Yeah, wonderful to be on. I, I hope we can do it again. All right, absolutely. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Take care. And uh, for those of you who are watching or listening to this in podcast, in, in replay form, don't forget you can leave us a comment. We do welcome your thoughts and feedback. Uh, the email address, live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. And of course, if you would like one of our stickers, you can send us a self addressed stamped envelope, sci fi for me, 1503 Main Street, number 305 in Grandview, Missouri, 64030. And we will send that to you. You can also send us material if you want to, if you've got a book that you want us to review, or if you've got a movie that you want us to take a look at, we can do that too. So, uh, and of course, you know, cookies are always fun. You can send those to. All right, that's going to do it for us. Don't forget, coming up uh, later on in the week, we do have the Walking and Rolling virtual party uh, that is uh, coming up starting on Friday at 7 p.m. Central and then uh, at 8 p.m. Central following that virtual party, we will have a brand new Ranker Pit talking about the latest Star Wars rumors, and there are quite a few of them. So that's going to do it for us here, folks. Thanks very much, and don't forget, no matter where you go, there you are. 
This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.